If you haven't done so, I invite you to turn in the Word of God to the Gospel of John, to chapter 14. For a number of weeks, we've been looking at the doctrine of Jesus' ascension into glory, and we come this morning to consider what it is that we confess in our Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 20, where we speak of our faith in Christ having sent the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? Now, John chapter 14 has a context. We're coming into this passage in order to see this, but understand a little bit of what's going on here. You're at a stage after three years of ministry. Now Jesus is nearing the time of his departure from being among the disciples on this earth. And think of what they had experienced at this point, how helpful it would be to have Jesus with you bodily. He had been the best teacher. He had helped them to understand the scriptures. He had worked in them to trust, to have assurance. He had encouraged them to pursue holiness more than they had ever imagined someone might. And so, of course, they would feel crushed at the idea of Jesus saying that he's going to depart from them. But then hear what Jesus says to them by way of consolation, because this he says to us who also do not have his physical presence at this time. Verse 16, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy, your inspired word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who works within us in order that it should take root and bear fruit. We ask this morning that you would be honored among us. We ask that Christ would be lifted up, that you would lead your people into a true understanding of this important doctrine, especially our children and those who are being brought into the faith. We pray that you would help them to understand, guard us all from error, and prepare us to carry these things into the world with power. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Tis the season when most of us, I imagine, are actually struggling to select gifts for people in our lives. And that may be especially true if last year you received a gift that you are very thankful for. Because then perhaps you have the feeling of wanting to outgive the person who gave to you. You want to show your gratitude, your love, by at least equaling, if not topping, the gift that they have given to you. Now, we will fail from the outset if we try to outgive God. What does the scripture tell you? It tells us when the Father wanted to bless us, he gave his only begotten Son. This is his love. And we can't outgive the giving of the infinite Holy Son. Now, the Son loves the disciples too, and He loves you. What will the Son give to His people that can possibly be equal to Himself? What can be so helpful as having Jesus with us? And this is where Jesus promises He says, I will ask my Father, and He will give you another helper. But he wants to insist to them, and he wants you to know that is not a downgrade. It's not a downgrade to have the Holy Spirit dwelling in and with you instead of having Christ bodily with you. In fact, if you were to turn over and look at John chapter 16, 
In verse 7, Jesus is emphatic. It is not a downgrade, this stage that you're in, compared to what the disciples experienced. John 16, verse 7, he says, I tell you the truth. He wouldn't have said that if he didn't know you were going to doubt what he was going to say. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. In other words, if you had to pick this morning between having Christ with you bodily or having the Holy Spirit given to you in the way that Jesus is talking about sending the Spirit, Jesus is telling you the Holy Spirit is more desirable. And that's something of a radical statement. I wonder whether or not you feel that way, whether or not you feel that the Spirit whom you have received, if indeed you are in Jesus Christ, is more advantageous for you than if Jesus was sitting next to you in the pew right now, but you had to not have the Holy Spirit in that way. Has the Holy Spirit been that power in your life? Have you experienced those benefits? And if not, why? So this morning, God helping us, we're going to consider the identity of this gift. Who is the Holy Spirit and what is his work among God's people, especially after the ascension and glorification of Jesus Christ? Do you understand the difference? These are the things that we consider. We're going to do so by way of three main headings. I'll announce each of them as we come to them. But first, I want you to picture something. You won't have to picture this for long. Many of you, you're going to see it yourselves. You're going to know it happened in your home. Picture on Christmas morning, before the parents are up, children do what they ought not to do. They get up and they go start to inspect the presents. Most of us did this, and we understand the challenges involved because you're not allowed to take the paper off. And it's dim lighting. And so what does the child do? The child picks up the gift and starts to move it around, try to feel it. In my own family, I wrapped something. I thought I had done a good job in hiding what it was. It was faced down. And then one of my sons turned it over and felt it and said, it's a fancy wooden box. He was right. He figured it out. He had some idea, but he still didn't know what kind of fancy box. He hasn't seen it. Under the Old Covenant, prior to Christ's coming, the New Covenant, the New Testament being written, Old Testament believers had some idea of who the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son were. But they labored under the fact that there was still all this redemptive wrapping paper on. We have the advantage of living on this side of Christ's coming. We have a greater understanding. The the packaging has, in a sense, been pulled off. And we also have greater light Here comes the Father, and he flips the switch, and now we see in light of the New Testament who the Holy Spirit is. And so let's consider, as our first main heading, who the Holy Spirit is. And it's important to begin that way with those words, who, not what. Children, if you learn anything this morning, may it be this, in the first place, the Holy Spirit is a distinct person, like the Father and the Son, a distinct person. Look at me at verse 17. Notice the personal pronouns Jesus uses. You know him, for he dwells with you. He doesn't say it. And Greek, the language had the equivalent of it. Whenever the Holy Spirit is spoken of in the Bible, personal language is used. And so the Holy Spirit is not a force, is not an attribute or an activity of the Father. 
The Holy Spirit is a distinct person. That's indicated also in other passages. For instance, Acts chapter 5, Peter says to Ananias and Sapphira, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? You can't lie to something like the wind. Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? Or in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, or 4, verse 30, the apostle tells us, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. So the Holy Spirit is personal. What kind of person is he? Our text describes the Holy Spirit in this way, verse 16, as another helper. Another helper. Now the word another here implies that there was a first helper, the first being Jesus. That's what they're fearful in this context. The disciples are afraid of losing Jesus, their helper. And he says he's another helper. The word here translated helper has a range of meanings in the original language. It can be used for a person who assists someone with tasks. It can be used for someone who advocates on behalf of someone or who intercedes for them or who teaches and instructs them. In different contexts, all of these apply to the work of the Holy Spirit. We'll come back to that. But first, appreciate he's helpful. His intention is one of love. His work is to bless. Now, of what quality helper is he? All of us probably at times have been assisted by helpers that we did not think were as helpful as other help helpers. Now imagine for a moment that maybe a dad is working on a car. He's working on an engine and he's using a wrench and he realizes he has the wrong size wrench and he says to his son, son, give me, give me another one. At that moment, he's using the word another in a special way. In that moment, he's using the word another to emphasize difference. The one I have is the wrong size. I need another that is different. The Greek language has a word which was available to Jesus that meant another but of a different kind or sort. That's not the word used here. Rather, the word that's used is more typically used to emphasize similarity or sameness. Imagine... Somebody hands you, you know, you've got a dessert tray of all different kinds of desserts. And somebody picks one and hands it to you and you eat it and it's so good. And you say, hand me another one. And by your very tone, hopefully they understand you mean that kind. The one, you know, the peanut butter one that looks like a Turkish hat and it's got a chocolate thing on it. You say, that one, another one, sameness. When Jesus says he will send you another helper, he uses that term. How can anyone be as helpful as Christ? He is infinite God. The answer is simple. So is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, according to Scripture, is one in being and essence with God the Father and with the Son. All their divine attributes he has in common with them. He is no less in power. There is one Lord and God. Now, where would we see that in Scripture? There are many places that we could go to, and this morning we we simply do not have time to only look at all the verses, but one passage for your consideration. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10 says, 1 Corinthians 2, 10, the Spirit of God searches everything, even the depths of God. Who can possibly plumb the depths of God? And in the context there, it's not just about hoping he'll find something he's never found, it's about knowing all things. Study it for yourself. Or take what we saw this morning. Children baptized in the name, singular. 
of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, where the name simply means the identity and the power of God. And so even in that, it would be a blasphemy to baptize in the authority of the Holy Spirit were not equal to that of Christ and the Son. And so in short, what does Christ give to his people to help them? Nothing less than God. Nothing less than a distinct person committed to your help. How often do we forget that? Maybe you've been in a situation where something's going wrong, say with an appliance, and you, you just have no idea how to fix it. And then as you pull it open, you, maybe it's a dishwasher, you pull it open, and you see a number right in there, a phone number, and it says, call this number, free help line. And I can assure you the Holy Spirit is more willing and more immediate and is willing just to help you in every circumstance. But we forget. We are the ones who hide it away. We are the ones who put away from ourselves the knowledge of the Holy Spirit's help. How does he help us? I think it's worth asking at this point a question. Here we have seen the Holy Spirit is God. And yet Jesus says that the helping will involve his being sent. He's God. He is omnipresent. He's here even now. He is present even among unbelievers. What then does it mean for him to be sent? Or take the fact that Jesus says to the disciples in our passage here, you know him. But he also says he will be sent and he will be in you. How is it that they both know him, he is among them, and he's going to be sent? Is he there or is he not there? And basically, especially for our children, understand this. There are important differences in the way that the Holy Spirit ministers among God's people before and after Jesus ascends to glory. The Holy Spirit ministers in all times. And he ministers salvation in essentially the same way through all ages. And yet there are distinctions in what he does before and after. And so as our second main heading, consider with me the ministry of the Holy Spirit as it applies to all ages. As it applies to all ages. How does the Holy Spirit minister? First notice, Jesus says that they knew him. And they knew him, as it says in verse 17, the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth. He is the selfsame spirit who guided the prophets of the Old Testament in all that they wrote, such that the word we have is the word of God. Peter, whom Jesus was addressing in our passage, later writes about this. Consider what he says. 1 Peter 1.21, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was active all up to the coming of Christ, ensuring that the word bore a faithful witness. Compare that to what we see in our own passage, John chapter 16. Look at verse 26, where Jesus is speaking about how the Holy Spirit will speak to the apostles. Verse 26, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. Think of all the parables, all the teachings. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. In a lesser way, we have the benefit of knowing as Christians that the Holy Spirit works to give us understanding. But at the very top level, understand the apostles were guided by the Holy Spirit. And you wonder, how did they remember all that stuff he said? 
because God did not forget. And the Holy Spirit was at work in them in order to bring together the Scripture of the New Testament. Now, he doesn't just communicate the truth in an outward way. One of the great helps, one of the greatest helps of the Holy Spirit is that the Bible tells us he actually works in people to receive the truth. He inclines them. What would happen if, you know, I inclined this pulpit far enough that way? Things would start falling off. Gravity would have its effect. And the Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit inclining people, spiritually working within them, to desire and to understand the things of God, to bring them to faith. This is evident, for instance, in verse 17, when Jesus says, The world cannot receive the Spirit of truth, because it neither sees him nor knows him. The Holy Spirit doesn't receive, or rather the world does not receive the Holy Spirit, because by nature they are opposed to him. Unless he performs a great work in them, which we call the new birth. No one sees these things. In John chapter 3, Jesus is speaking with one of the great leaders of Jerusalem, of Israel at that time, one of the great teachers, Nicodemus. And Jesus is explaining to him that unless you are born again of the Holy Spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Think of those words, born again. Is there anything of which a person has less to do than their own birth? Receiving life and a certain kind of nature. And Nicodemus marvels at this, but not because it's a new revelation. Jesus says to him, are you a teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? This was an old lesson for the people of God. And even so, Paul can say in Romans chapter 2, verse 29, speaking of all times and ages, he says, He is a true Jew who is one inwardly, and true circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit. Even so, we might say, true baptism is in the heart. Putting water on a child does not guarantee regeneration. Rather, we trust that God in his time will perform his work as he wills. We encourage and nurture faith. But we don't have that power. He does. Still more, he helps us not just to come to faith, but to strengthen us throughout our whole life to renew his people. Thank God this morning, if you have persevered for more than an hour, where did that come from? Did the Lord, in a sense we say as a fool, get lucky? that there were a few people on earth who had the right stuff. Not at all. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 58, Solomon is praying on the steps of the temple, and he says, quote, It is the Lord who inclines our hearts to him, to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules. If you're not walking in his ways, start praying, God, incline me. And then walk in his way by faith. That's the prayer we're taught in Psalm 119. Incline my heart to your testimonies, O Lord, and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Give me life in your ways. That's not a prayer you pray one time. Why doesn't the Lord give it to you all at once? Probably to teach us our weakness. So that we discover how truly weak we are without the help of the Holy Spirit. Likewise, under the New Covenant, we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Holy Spirit 
and faith in the truth. And so it's the Holy Spirit who works throughout all of this, and not only for your own individual sanctification, but also for the mission that we're called to. Under the Old Testament period, under the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit did equip God's people with extraordinary gifts for the work they were called to. But it's different than under the New Covenant. Children, I might ask you, do you understand, what was the basic missionary work of God's people before the coming of Christ? This is making it very, very simple, but basically they were called to be a stationary light in the world. They had a nation that they were in. They were not told at that point that they must leave it other than exile. That was not good. But they were a stationary light in the world, and the nations would look upon their life and faith and discover who the Lord is. And they had a temple as a picture of that. And God poured out extraordinary gifts. The, the temple was considered one of the wonders of the world while it yet existed. And God equipped people in special ways. Exodus chapter 35. Exodus 35 says in verse 32, The Lord has filled the craftsman Bezalel with the Spirit of God with skill, intelligence, knowledge, and with all craftsmanship. And then it reads off a list I'm not going to present before you right now of all his skills, that he works with bronze, that he can make tapestries. This guy had all kinds of artistic gifts. But it was to furnish the temple as a light to the world. And so at both times in history, God, by his spirit, equips us with the things necessary for the mission. You have to hold that in mind. God doesn't send you on his mission hoping that you are great marketers and that you'll figure out how to make the gospel attractive to people who by nature hate it. He equips you to be faithful. He equips you to say the truth, to speak it in love. And it's he who works then through that in the world as he sees fit. And so at all periods, these are things that the work of the Holy Spirit is similar for us all. And yet there is some kind of difference. Look with me. Turn back a little bit to John chapter 7. We saw in our passage already, John chapter 14, that Jesus says, the Holy Spirit is with you, but he's also going to be sent. What does that mean? That means he's going to be sent for a specific task or in specific ways. It's not that he had not been there. And yet this difference is emphasized in John chapter 7, verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. In other words, the Spirit had not yet been given in such a way as the Word and the power would gush as a generality from all believers into the world. He had not come in that way upon them. And so as our third and final heading, consider with me, what is the work of the Holy Spirit after Christ's ascension? Because that's the work that Jesus is emphasizing in John 14. Don't we often make most of all the things I already addressed as the work of the Holy Spirit, sanctification as a general concept, regeneration, certain gifts in a very general way. And yet Jesus is saying, though those things existed then, there's something different under the new covenant, something available 
a fullness in the Spirit. Look at verse 17. He dwells with you and will be in you. We hear that in one way, but I think it's important for us to try as much as we might to hear that as the disciples would have heard it. That they would recognize Jesus getting at a difference in indwelling between the old and the new covenant. A difference in indwelling. Mind you, it's really clear from what we've seen, the Holy Spirit did work within believers. If he didn't, no one would have come to faith, and certainly nobody would have persevered in the faith. Says elsewhere in the New Testament, we all partake of the same spirit. He worked within. And yet, as a rule throughout the Old Testament, the language of indwelling is not used concerning individuals. You do have a very, very few instances where the Holy Spirit is described as entering someone in a more profound way. Ezekiel 2 verse 2, the prophet says, And the Holy Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. But even the fact that he says that indicates it wasn't his normal experience. Overwhelmingly, the words that are used in the Old Testament concerning the work of the Holy Spirit are prepositions like in, with, upon, among. In, with, on, among. Not this specific phrase of dwelling. If you were to ask somebody in David's time or afterward, where does the Holy Spirit dwell? Where is God's Spirit dwelling? Where do you think they would have said? That's not rhetorical, but you don't have to say it out loud, but really think. Under the Old Covenant, they're asked, where is God's Spirit dwelling? What's the answer? They would say, in the Holy of Holies. Even as it says in Exodus 25, verse 8, the Lord says, let them make me a sanctuary in order that I may dwell in their midst. Under the Old Covenant, God made his presence most manifest as a rule within the Holy of Holies. Only one person could go in there, the high priest, only once a year. And God's people, when they speak about the presence of the Lord, there's a longing to be near where he's most manifested, where his holiness is most displayed. And so imagine the horror, the sorrow when that temple was destroyed and when God's spirit is removed from their ability to sense it there. That's how things were up until the time of Christ's coming. But Jesus signaled there was going to be a transition. You may remember this story. Jesus is speaking to a a woman, a Samaritan woman. She says, should we worship on Mount Zion in Jerusalem or should we worship here in Samaria? And he says, woman, I say to you, the time is coming and now is when people will no longer worship on this or that mountain. He's getting at the idea of a temple being what we think of. That's where God is in his power. He says, the time is coming. God is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. The Holy Spirit worked within people before the coming of Christ. But with his ascension, with Jesus' ascension, something happens. When he ascends to glory, bearing himself as the true and eternal sacrifice, as the sufficient offering, as our high priest into the very presence of God, the true Holy of Holies, the earthly temple ceases to have a purpose anymore for us. The reality has come. 
And the Holy Spirit is taken from that earthly temple. And from that point forward, Jesus is saying, from the time of my ascension to glory, you can anticipate my Holy Spirit will come and tabernacle in you in such a way that this is now from this time forward where God's presence and holiness will be most felt, manifested, and presented before the world. Not put in a box, hidden for our very safety, but sent into the world. And with that, we should expect that there is a kind of analogy, if not a greater sense of fullness. Think of the the awesome feeling of the high priest as he would have entered the Holy of Holies, knowing his life literally depends on having done everything just right. A holy God is in there. If he's not covered by the ritual sacrifice, he's a dead man. And yet, the Holy Spirit would dwell in you and make you to feel I am where the the God who is holy desires to be. And that should assure you Christ's sacrifice is sufficient. But now if you are the temple of God, how holy ought we to strive to live all the time? You aren't just priests who serve the temple. You are the temple We are the stones joined to Christ, the cornerstone. And under the new covenant, we can expect that the Holy Spirit communicates to God's people a sense of his presence. See what it says in John chapter 14, verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me, and I in you. In a sense, we might say that Christ's second coming, there are kind of two of them. The second will be bodily, but the first is that he comes in the Spirit. He makes his dwelling in us. He communicates to us a sense of his presence and power, of his holiness and the calling that we have. And so, I would, in the first place, set before you by way of conclusion, think about that. In this season of giving, as you think about why we give, may it not be simply as, you know, there's a custom, a tradition, and if I don't, I'm going to be looked upon in a bad way by other people. All of this hopefully originated out of a desire to imitate the generosity of God. And our first thought should constantly be that we cannot outgive God. He has given to us his own son, and the son has given to you his own spirit. Of course, we don't always experience the Spirit to the same extent. And I'm sure in a group of this size that there are quite a few who feel barren of the Spirit's power. And maybe it's been that way for a long time. Maybe you have never felt that. You don't even know what I'm talking about. And there was a time when I didn't know what I was talking about, too. Though I had been a professing Christian for over a decade. I do want to bear witness to you. There is a reality which mature believers can speak of meaningfully. Of the work of God dwelling in you where there is an incredible sense at times. I am with God and he is in me and I cannot lose him. Even as Jesus says, forever. And the spirit ministers to you, you will never be separated from your God. And times when you exult in the Spirit and you say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If you don't know what I'm speaking about or it's been a while, let me exhort you, seek the fullness of the Spirit. 
This is one of the main lessons in the Gospels, Jesus telling people how to seek the fullness of the Spirit. You have the Spirit, but you are to seek the fullness of the Spirit. We're told to pray like there is no other substitute. The example of of a woman who's bereft of bread for her children as a parable in the Gospels. How much would you beg and plead to put bread on the table for your kids? There's no substitute for the nourishment of the Spirit, and you are to pray like you need this until you experience it again. Likewise, believe that God will reward those who seek him, and then consecrate yourself in faith to him. Look with me at verse 21, and then we'll close in prayer. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. There is a sense, an analogy that holds when you consider how the temple was set apart for the worship of God, and yet they still had to perform certain rituals, purification, and then the Holy Spirit would manifest inside. There is a sense in which we experience God's Spirit less when we grieve him. And he calls us not to merit it, but as a matter of faith, of reconciled relationship with our Heavenly Father, with our Holy Brother, that we put away sin, that we say, I recognize there is no place for the pleasure of God to smile upon me while I yet indulge sin. Believe, if you repent in faith and persevere in his way, there are riches of experience that are real in the Holy Spirit, which many Christians never taste. It's like leaving the gifts under the tree while you go play with like the shells of the broken nuts. That's how children are, right? They forget that there are valuable things. Christianity is far better than most of us, myself included, imagine almost all the time. May God help us to seek that then. Let's ask his blessing now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you promise us extraordinary things. We thank you that in sending your church out, no longer a stationary light, but out into the world, that you promise to pour out your spirit in proportion as that mission is expanded. We look in Acts and we see how never before had so many people been empowered to prophesy all at once. Never had so many people been equipped with so many gifts in such a degree. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would not leave us be, but that you would convict us and fill in us a hunger and appetite until your spirit reigns upon us in power, until it is so evident that we manifest the fruits of the spirit and the gifts become an embarrassment to us if we do not run throughout our city in this world sharing the gospel and sharing with others the power of the kingdom, the age to come. Fill us for your glory, for we ask in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.